Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey there, Food Junkies listeners. Today we have Coach Mary Roberts. Mary Roberts spent the majority of her life battling sugar addiction and various stages of obesity. Through living a ketogenic lifestyle, she has overcome obesity and maintains control over her food addiction and her health. She is recovering bulimic, compulsive overeater, binge eater, and has over six years of food sobriety. Mary is passionate about helping people navigate a ketogenic way of eating and overcoming their dysfunctional relationship with food. Keto literally saved her life and she wants other people to know they don't have to suffer. Mary has experience working with clients to overcome eating disorders such as binge eating disorder and bulimia. Several of her clients have reversed their type 2 diabetes, learned to manage their type 1 without extreme highs and lows, managing their autoimmune diseases, overcoming obesity, lowering their high cholesterol, lowering their high blood pressure, and overcoming their food and sugar addiction. In this episode, you're going to hear about how food addiction has impacted Mary's life, what life and recovery is like now, how she works with clients, what works best what doesn't work so well, how she has evolved her coaching with clients, what actions lead her clients to success, body image concerns, and our signature question. Welcome, Mary. All right. We're so excited to be here today with Mary. We're going to dive right in. Can you share how food addiction has impacted your life? Like how old were you? What was it like before you started recovery and how hard the beginning felt? And how did you find that strength to keep going? Well, you know, it's been a lifelong battle. It started when I was like a preteen and I grew up in an alcoholic home. And so I think that was, you know, part of it. Food became, you know, my friend, my comfort, my reward, my entertainment. You know, I, I used food for everything except hunger. I'm not even sure. You know, I know for years and years, I didn't even know what real hunger was. And it was very hard in the beginning. So, I mean, I battled, you know, the whole dieting thing, you know, tons of diets. Like I think I've tallied it up one time. I think I've tried like 36 different diets. <laughs> you know, if there was an infomercial for it or like a pill, so I did everything. I was so desperate. I tried everything. My go-to was stream caloric restriction and calorie counting. That was my thing. And then in, in high school, I discovered bulimia. So I battled that for a while. And then, you know, the bulimic mentality for most of my life. And, you know, so when I found myself at age 42, which is when I entered like recovery for real, I say for real because, you know, I had done like, I was an inpatient one time. I did outpatient. I did therapy one-on-one. I did groups. I did OA, you know, I did everything. And so I, you know, gathered little nuggets along the way. But at age 42, when I finally got some right information that I had been lacking, which was regarding nutrition, I finally was able to 
I had the mental clarity and the improved cognitive function to be able to actually address my issues with food. So when I first started, you know, on the one hand, it physically felt easy, except that first week, you know, you go through which like sugar withdrawal is real. You know, that first week was a little rough, but after that, I felt like not hungry for the first time in my life. Like I wasn't suffering from hunger like I was on every other diet that I had done. And so physically that part was fine, but the emotional pain was really tough because, you know, at that time, you know, I didn't have the phraseology and stuff that I have now. I didn't look at what I was doing as food sobriety. I, my daily mantra was we're not cheating, not cheating, that was like every day. Nope, we're not cheating. And I would talk to myself and like, I have to battle that desire to cheat. Even though I physically wasn't craving anymore, I just had that emotional urge to want to keep devouring cheesecake, you know? And I remember literally crying and screaming into my pillow. I was so frustrated and I had wanted to eat so badly, but I knew I was finally like at that place where I was committed. And I knew, I just knew that if I gave in, You know, like if I gave into the voice of Ed in my head to just have one piece, it won't hurt. You've been so good for so long, you know, go ahead, have it. I knew if I gave into that, it would be the beginning of the end. And I would just stay stuck in the cycle and and on the roller coaster. So it was really hard, you know, emotionally in the beginning. And there was lots of crying and anger and frustration, but I just kept pushing through and I don't know, eventually like it just felt easier. Yeah. I feel like just, you know, having heard your story before, you know, hearing that part of it, it feels very similar to my own where I did all these years of therapy and working on emotional eating, all these things. And so then it was like, when I finally read Vera's book, Food Junkies, and I was like, oh, it's food. Like literally just put down these drug foods. Yes. It was like, it snapped into place, right? Because I had done all this previous work, right? All the cognitive behavioral therapy, all the skills, all the emotional work. It was like, you just needed that last final piece. And it was right? Like the light bulbs came on and things changed. But then, like you said, that emotional part. So what is life in food addiction recovery like now? Like what things do you do for your recovery on a daily basis? Well, one of the ways that I stay, first of all, I got rid of, like when I got food sober, I got rid of all my health issues. So I keep going because I don't ever want to live that life again. Right. You know, so what it feels like, I feel free, I feel energized. I feel healthy. I feel grateful. I know that always like throws people like, is I think that for the longest time, I always felt like, I wish I didn't have this eating disorder, you know, but I'm at a place where like, I'm grateful that I have it because it brought me to like where I am and the life that I have now and the freedom that I get to experience. But so aside from not wanting to go backwards and and returning to all my terrible health and then, you know, the mental struggles, what I do to stay sober is, you know, I keep pursuing my sobriety daily by making the right food choices, but I help others. I think I get a lot of, a lot out of that. I think like, you know, working with clients and stuff, I feel like it does more for me than it does for them. Although many of them would argue that. And I get a lot of messages thanking me and stuff, but that's what keeps me going is I want to be able to help others and I want them to have the freedom that I have. 
Yeah, I think Molly and I can completely relate to that. We're doing a treatment group right now. And, you know, every time they share and they get vulnerable, it's like they inspire us. We are so, you know, motivated by the courage that they show up with. So it really is, it does make the work we do. It's like a gift back to us as well. Mm -hmm. So I completely appreciate that. So what is it like when you work with clients? Like what can people expect? Is it groups? Is it one-on-one? What is unique about a client that has food addiction that they want to work with you? So I do both groups and one-on-one. Personally, I prefer the groups because I can help more people at, at once. And there's also something about that, you know, camaraderie within the group and the, the network of support that they, you know, they start connecting with each other. So they not only have me, but they have each other. And so I really like the group dynamic, but I do work one-on-one with people, but I'm limited to how, you know, I mean, you can only work with so many people at once and I'm, you know, when I first started, like things blew up and grew like in a manner that I wasn't expecting. And so for a while there, I was like burning the candle at both. I was like, I had way too much going on. So these days I really prefer groups, but I do work with people one-on-one. And I think, you know, what people can expect from me is that even though like I have a plan and agenda on how to work with people, I'm not scripted. They can expect honesty from me that I'll share my experiences and the embarrassing things that I've done in my life with food. I want them to know that they're safe with me and there's no judgment. Like no one's going to tell me something that makes me like, really, you did that? Because I ate food out of garbage before. So they can expect to, you know, have a safe space with me and that I'm not going to judge them. And they can also expect that I'll be direct. And I think what makes me different and and why I like y'all so much is because the mainstream eating disorder treatment community, like they just hammer, hammer, hammer on eat everything in moderation. And it's such a lie and so detrimental and so insulting. And so that's what they could expect. Like I, I'm not, you know, I have a group called food freedom. And I think, you know, when people hear that, like, you know, the mainstream food freedom to most people and addicts, especially want to hear it, right. Is that you can eat whatever you want without consequence, but that is not what my group is about. I'm going to straight up tell you, there are things that you shouldn't eat. And we talk about why. And so that's what people can expect from me, that I'll be direct, that I'll be honest with them, that I'll share my experience with them and that I won't judge them. Now you said you have like a curriculum, but you're not necessarily scripted. How many weeks does a group run or is it just an ongoing kind of thing? And like, what kinds of things would you cover in that time period? So the group that I'm currently doing is a four, it's four weeks and we cover things like do you have an ed? Like so many people come to me, they don't even know that their issue is that they have an eating disorder. They think, oh, I just haven't found the right diet or, you know, oh, I'm just not disciplined I, or I need more willpower. They like internalize it and blame themselves. They don't realize that what they're dealing with is an eating disorder. And they, you know, they say things like, we've all said this, right? Like, I'm successful in my job. I, you know, I'm really great at this, that, and the other thing, but I just can't seem to get it together with food. And so one of the first things I talk about, like in the first day is 
do you have an eating disorder? And we go over the different types of eds and light bulbs go off for people. We talk about the voice of sabotage and, and you know how important it is to separate that voice from our voice. We do talk about nutrition because I think it's a key factor missing for a lot of people when they're in recovery. If our nutrition isn't right, it's going to make it really, really hard for us to stay sober. Which I talk about changes in relationships. I talk about how to deal with people in our life who are not supportive. And even if though, like they're unintentionally not supportive, you know, the food pushers and people who are concerned, oh, you know, really you eat that way? That's unhealthy. You know, so we talk about all of those different things and, you know, who should be in our circle of influence. So many topics, but yes, kind of jam-packed into four weeks. And people can repeat the group and every time they're going to get, you know, it's not going to be exactly the same because, you know, when I am running a group and the things that I talk about and the responses that I have, it depends one on me, like, where am I at that day? And two, where are the people in the group at? What questions are they asking? That kind of thing. So I think that there's value to like taking it over and over, even though it's the same agenda. Yeah. And then how long do those, so it's once a week for how long, an hour, two hours? Yeah. So I run my groups through Facebook and it's a once a week, hour long Zoom call. And I also, but I post daily. So sometimes it's a print post. Sometimes it's just a video of me, you know, explaining something or you know, going over something, but it's daily content. They can interact with me daily on the group. And then the once a week Zoom call. So that leads me into what I was hoping you would answer for us next is what do you find works best in working with clients in a group setting or even those few one-on-ones that you still manage to pack into your schedule and what doesn't work so well? I think that in the group setting, what really works is allowing people to, you know, share what they need to share and not like, you know, I think there's a tendency a lot of times like to correct people. And so, you know, I think that group dynamic of, of just letting people share works really well. And I think not being rigid and I try to, you know, talk to them about this, like, don't like, we can't be rigid in our recovery. We can be committed but we don't have to be rigid. And so I think that having that conversation is important too. Is there something that you kind of believed early on when you first started this working with people that since working with them for so long now, and maybe even in your own recovery, you've learned, oh, that's actually not how it should be. And I need to be a little bit more flexible around that. Is there anything that you can speak of that relates to? Well, I think in the beginning, like I wanted to like save the world and I thought I could help everybody. (laughs) But what I've discovered is that like, you know, I'm not for everyone. My personality and my approach doesn't, you know, work for everybody. I have definitely become more flexible about food. I was way more rigid in the beginning with food because I was afraid of going backwards. So I am, you know, more flexible now, not in the sense that I go off plan or eat something I know I shouldn't, but like, I don't sweat going out to like, in the, you know, I thought like, oh, you can't go out to eat because everything's poison. Right. And so I've learned we could go out to eat. We can still participate in life and we don't have to like stress over every little thing. You know, but otherwise I pretty much operate the same. Like my goal every day is to like be sober and not eat foods that harm me. 
Yeah. And, and that's such an interesting perspective. Not, it, it's so funny how so many of us show up and the, we're very rigid in the beginning with certain beliefs, you know, especially for ourselves. And then that comes out in how we work with clients. Yeah. And then we realize like, oh, actually, like you said, like life, we can participate in life. Like it can go on. We can relax a little and live a little messy, like dance in the gray yes. area, you know, which is so funny that you bring up that part about the food, you know, because Clarissa and I have definitely found that with other things, you know, like dairy or not dairy grains or not grains. And at the end of the day, it's like, does it work for this person? And if it works for this person, who are we to step in and say that's poison or that's wrong exactly. and that's not abstinent. <laughs> it has to be so individualized to the person. So, you know, it's funny, again, like you said that you brought up the food because we find in the beginning and sometimes even well into the process, it's really hard to get the clients to move past the food. So how do you get folks to move past the food, right? Because it can start to feel like another detox, another diet. If they're like, oh, if I just eat these things yeah. and don't eat those things, then problem solved. So how do you, yeah, yeah. how do you move them forward? Well, I ask a lot of questions and I always direct them back to their history too. Like, right. Like we battle this, like we have the, you know, I talk about how we battle that voice of sabotage, which in that voice, you know, one of the things that it says to us is you have to track, you know, like it'll tell us like there's these different rules that we have to follow. And so there are, you know, I work with clients who like, I have one I'm working with right now that he's a data junkie, right? Like <laughs> there's like, five screenshots of charts I get sent every day. And so we're, you know, trying to like work past that, but you know, his ed has him convinced that if he doesn't do all these things that he will just like derail and, and fly off the handle. So I ask a lot of questions. I direct them to, you know, the truth of their past and like has, well, so how well has this worked out before? I talk about how, if we want a different outcome that we have to have a different approach. And I remind people that, if we focus on the recovery piece, the food will take care of it. So, you know, if we're focusing on being sober, the food takes care of itself. And also I point out that, look, the food, you know, like they obsessively looking for recipes and tracking macros and, you know, looking for variety that those are all that numbers obsession and stuff. That's all part of the disorder, you know? So if we want to be free, it includes letting go of that stuff too. I mean, do we want to be logging food in my fitness pal when we're 80? No. So then how do you get them to really start talking about the emotional, psychological, spiritual aspect of this disease? I mean, I would say that's probably the most difficult, like come along with me aspect yeah. of what I do with clients. So how do you do that? Well, one of the things, one of the methods I use is HALT. The hungry, angry, and that mine's like H-A-A-L-T, hungry, angry, anxious, lonely, tired, right? And so getting them away from the food to talk about the emotions is like, what are you using the food for? Like, what do you think the food is going to do for you? And we can get away from the food part by looking for the real need. So, you know, I have them employ halt. You got to stop. Am I really, truly hungry right now? And if I'm really, truly hungry, then guess what? Food is the answer, but the appropriate kind of food, you know, but if the problem is anything other than real hunger, then food's not going to be the solution. And so, you know, what is our need? So, you know, I help them identify like, what is the need? It's not hunger. And if we're lonely, the food is not going to fix anything. If we're lonely, what we need is connection with somebody, right? Like, so directing them to, to connect with somebody, whether it's me as their coach 
or a friend that they, they trust, or even like getting online and connecting with like-minded people, like having a connection with people will make us feel less lonely. You know, tired is another big one where people tend to like, you know, oh, that's where they derail when they're tired. And, you know, they think, you know, I've just had such a long day. I didn't take any meat out to thaw, you know, so I'm just going to get a pizza. It was going to go through the drive through or something. And so it's like letting them, helping them recognize that, okay, well, if you're so tired that you can't make the right food decision, then food is not your real need. What is your real need? It's rest. So that's what we're going to do first is take care of the real need and rest. And then when you're rested, you can make a better food decision. We're wondering, do you, in your groups have, or one-on-one, have you ever run into this volume addiction piece? And, you know, obviously I have a history of bulimia as well. And it was, you know, the volume was exciting, but I had a plan to be able to get rid of the volume. And I'm wondering for those who don't have the bulimia, but, you know, may have some level of the binge eat volume addiction disorder, what mechanism do you think is at play and how do you help support people around that when they can just, you know, you get these carnivores who are like, you can eat I'm like, you'll never get full on steak. <laughs> Not true. I could probably keep eating Oh, you, steak. the whole you can't binge on meat movement. Yeah. Yes. So, and, or vegetables. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like, how do you help support those individuals who struggle with volume? So I think one of the first ways to tackle it is like through nutrition. Cause I think, you know, I mean, I was a volume binge eater, volume eater. And I, there are times where like, I will eat a lot of food in one sitting, but that's my one meal for the day. I don't consider that a binge. You know, I think that that's why I, cause I stop when it stops tasting good and that I don't, when my body doesn't need anymore. But the first way is through nutrition and people's leptin and ghrelin is like completely skewed when they are first getting sober, especially if they're coming off of a high carb, you know, binge and restrict cycle. And so I think fixing that is, goes a long way because then people can actually start to feel their hunger and fullness signals. And for a lot of people that solves it for them because they don't want it, you know, but, but there is that side that where, you know, the, I don't know, I guess the addiction to the full feeling and there, you know, that's a little harder to overcome. And so it's still mostly addressed with having the right nutrition and, you know, really just trying to pay attention to what being satisfied feels like. And then for some of those people, uh, one big meal a day is appropriate and they're fine with not eating the rest of the, you know, they have their one big meal, they feel full and satisfied and comfortable, and then they don't eat again until the next day. So that's a tough one. Yeah, we found it to be difficult as well because it's more than just like binging on the drug foods, right? It's the, I've had my steak and Brussels sprouts and side salad but I'm missing something. Right. And so mm-hmm. it's just like that continued piece that for that expansion of the stomach, you know, and, and we know there's a serotonin and oxytocin release. So yeah. that's like, are, is, what are you really seeking happiness yeah. and, and comfort? Okay. How can we get that in another way? And so we use yes. a lot of mindful eating tactics to help with that, but still it's really hard when every day I have clients who are, who have that, like you said, like, Oh, eat as much meat as you want, because you're actually never like, you'll stop, you'll stop. And these people aren't stopping and they're getting scared. Right. Or it's keto. They're still seeking that comfort. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So it's been really interesting because not many people know and understand what to do about this volume piece. I mean, we just interviewed Professor Noakes, Tim Noakes, and that episode will air tomorrow. And we asked him and he was like, I have no idea. I have no idea what's at play here. Like behavioral, it's behavioral maybe. I don't know. You know, Rob Wolf talks about neuroregulation of appetite, but I know I heard you and Amber on her podcast talking about Ben Beekman's book and the difference between like being full and that satiation. And I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about that and do you educate people on that when you're working around some of this volume stuff? Yeah. A lot of people, they don't recognize the fullness, but I do try to talk about the difference between being full and being satisfied, but that could take a long time. I think it, it, you know, it took me a couple of years to recognize the difference between that full feeling in my stomach and being actually satiated. You know, I think it's definitely doesn't happen overnight and it's something that we just have to like work on daily. But again, I think the biggest piece is the, you know, the it's hormonally it's when those, when our hormones get straightened out, we are better able to deal with that. With that then, and I know I heard you say like at times you do like one meal a day, that kind of thing. And I know Jen Unwin, uh, you know, but again, we're, we're years into recovery at this point. We're talking yes. about you, know, you saying six years, Jen, I think is like nine years, that kind of thing. So when you're working with folks in the beginning and they're just figuring out they have eating disorder, food addiction, whatever, do you ever suggest to them or encourage fasting or what are, what's your take on fasting with food addiction? So I'm a huge fan of fasting for metabolic health, but I think that people that are dealing with an ed have to be more careful. Like I think the daily intermittent fasting is fine, but what I find with a lot of clients and that I, and I have to like reel them back in is because we can be disordered with the fasting too. At first, they're really afraid of it. And, you know, but then they discover after doing it for a while and they want to go longer and longer, they get that. Let's face it. You can get like that same high that you get from binge eating. You can get that same high from fasting. And I know I dealt with that, like in the early years, like once I started fasting, like I started doing like five and six days and I loved the high of it. But then I realized it's after a while, like it wasn't serving me well. And I wasn't wasn't like making me thinner. It definitely helped me metabolically, but then I would struggle at the end with getting back into eating food. And you, and let's face it, when you come off that high and you eat that first meal, it's almost like this like instant depression, (laughs) you know? So I just think that when we're dealing with an ed, we have to be careful with fasting because people can take that to an extreme as well, but it's definitely beneficial. I think in recovery, you know, if it's used appropriately. Yeah. Like you said, almost like that daily, like time restricted eating, like the kitchen is closed at 6, 7 PM, whatever it is. And it opens again at 12, 14 hours later, whatever that is, go ahead. Okay. But then be mindful of the rest of it. And we, we talk a lot about like, give yourself some time to wire before you think you have to jump onto this whole, but that's part of the disorder, right? People want to like, Oh, I heard, you know, they want to do everything all at once, you know? And Mm -hmm. so I talk to people about, look, all we're going to do right now is make sure you're putting the right food in your mouth. We don't need to worry about this other stuff because actually, you know, fasting when you're eating right and you're eating the right foods and feeling satiated, it's going to happen naturally. It's not even something you have to force because if we're honoring our hunger and fullness signals, we're going to eat when we're hungry and stop when we're full. And so the fasting, that's how I ended up starting fasting. I didn't know it was an intentional thing back then, but I just noticed that, 
oh, you know, I'm not really hungry some days. And I had just decided I'm only going to eat if I feel hungry. And so most days I was hungry twice. Some days I was hungry once. Some days I was never hungry. And I just honored that it happened naturally. Where I started to get screwed up was where I intentionally fat. I discovered there was, you could intentionally fast. So of course the, you know, disordered part of my brain is like, let's just keep going longer. I know. Right. And now there's so many, you know, it's so contentious, even within the fasting world, we've got people who are anti-fung and we've got fung thing, whatever. And it's just so interesting. And it's like, whoa, again, it's all noise. Everybody who's listening to this, it's all noise. Yeah. You have to find what works for you and come and get some support around that. Get some help. Don't just listen to read a book or listen to a podcast and think, yep, that's the thing I'm doing because that is the disease taking over for sure. So, so in your experience, then what are some of those major challenges other than, other than those ones we just talked about? Like, what are some major challenges that food addicts like face daily? You know, I've heard you talk about bulimic mentality. Like, does that factor in? Give us some ideas of like what challenges your clients run into. So aside from our own, you know, voice of sabotage, like I think a lot of people struggle with dealing with other people. And I try to talk to clients about, I'm like, I try to tell them, look, don't talk to people about what you're doing. (laughs) Talk to me because the minute we bring, especially like in social situations, if we go into, you know, Thanksgiving dinner, for example, as we start talking about, oh, what's in that? Oh, I can't have that. Oh, I'm keto. I'm paleo. I'm this, I'm that. Like we invite criticism and conversation that we may not be prepared to deal with because we're like, you know, making announcements about stuff. So I think that's a huge struggle for people is like the, that desire to want to like tell the world what we're doing, but then we get pushback and we don't know how to deal with that. And people end up confused because they're excited about something they read online. And then they tell their friend who's an armchair nutritionist and, and they're like, Oh no, that's terrible. You know? So then they get confused. And I, so I think that's like one of the biggest struggles, just dealing with the myriad of opinions of, of other people. And also, so you had mentioned the bulimic mentality and that is, that is when, you know, for people that don't know, if you do binge and then you immediately, you're like, okay, I, I need to go run on the treadmill for an hour, or I'm going to, you know, take these laxatives to try to, you know, any behavior that we do that to try to undo something we did, that's bulimic mentality. Like I think for most people, they hear the word bulimia and they think vomiting, right? But it's not the only way. There's that bulimic mentality that... So even though I stopped purging when I was in my 20s, I still had that like, let me undo this mentality you know, when I would make what I felt like was a a mistake, if I made a bad food decision, I would try to do some sort of activity to undo it. And that's another thing, like people use fasting to do that. Like I've seen it so many times, like on, on the, you know, Facebook groups and stuff. Oh, I, you know, I, I derailed over the Thanksgiving holiday. So now I'm going to do a 72 hour fast. No, (laughs) don't do that. So do you find in like, I'm sure you have those individuals that you work with and maybe in group where, you know, I, we may use the term chronic relapsers, right? They can't stay sober for maybe more than two weeks you know, they get to that two and a half, three week mark and they really start to struggle. How do you work specifically with those individuals to help support them, to get them to that longer term sobriety? Well, we just keep backtracking, you know, so like, okay, what, so what I go through, like, what was the thought process? Because every time someone relapses, it's because they had a conversation with the voice of sabotage and they lost. And so I want to take them back to like, what was that conversation? 
What were you hearing? Like what happened that made you decide to go along with that voice? And I think, you know, so if we can keep going back to that and recognizing and realizing that the voice of sabotage is a dirty, rotten liar and makes us promises that, you know, they're false promises, you know, like how many times did I fall for, you know, eat it all tonight? Because if you do, there'll be nothing left tomorrow to tempt you right? Like that is so illogical. But when we're in the thick of it, we don't see, you know, how illogical it is. Or, or like when we have, you know, the voice says, oh, just have one piece. And so we give into that. We're like, okay, yeah, one, I'm just going to have one, even though I have a track record my entire life of never having one piece, right? I believe it. I'm like, yes, I'm going to have one piece. And then as soon as I'm eating that one piece, there's that voice popping back up to compound more lies on me. And it says, oh, well, you blew it. Now you're eating one piece. You may as well eat the whole thing. And, you know, that's like, again, it's illogical. That's like if I have a flat tire, the one piece, and I look at that flat tire, instead of fixing it and moving on, I say, may as well pop the other three. It's just illogical, but this is how that voice of sabotage works. So I just direct people back to like, what is that conversation? Let's go over that. And is that true? And we combat it with what's the truth. And I think when people do that process enough, you know, that's when it becomes, you know, it kind of becomes our new normal. But yeah, I mean, and sometimes people, we do have to, like, you know, we go through the stages of grief when we do have to do the bargaining and the testing, we have to test it out. We go two weeks, we're like, oh, I'm doing good. I can handle it now. And we test it, we fail and we realize, oh, okay, obviously I couldn't handle it. And then we're back on. But I also like to let people know that, you know, relapse is not inevitable. That's one thing I do not like. I mean, there's lots of things I don't like about the eating disorder treatment community, but that's another thing that I don't like is that they're like, you know, that relapse is just inevitable. It has to happen. It doesn't, it does not have to happen. I mean, does it for a lot of people? Yes, but we can eventually beat out that voice of sabotage. If we have the tools and the process, we can overcome Ed in any situation, any tempting situation, I believe. Yeah. So my big question, I think too, is how do you, and and I'm sure there's no secret answer here, right? Like (laughs) this is just professional to professional trying to get some tips. How do you get people to move from that? I'm going to outthink this. I'm going to outfeel it to the actual action part, right? Because we can go back and we can analyze the what was going on before a relapse or a return to use or continued use because they just can't put it down, period. But we know it's that action piece that's going to get yeah. them to where they want to be. How do you motivate people, encourage people? Like, what do you do to get them to take the actions necessary? Well, I encourage them to like reach out to me, which is, you know, sometimes, I mean, there's people that are going to, and then there's people that are not, they're just going to like do what they do and then come and confess later and we review it, you know, but I encourage people to reach out like before making a bad decision. And I think too, like one thing that's helpful is having them state, you know, like every morning, like, what is your intention today? Like state your daily intention and let, you know, let me know, let the group know. And I think that, you know, can go a long way, but I think it is a lot of times like a habit that, you know, they've got to get into the habit of doing that so that it becomes easier. So then what would you say the clients that you see do really well, what is it they're doing in your groups that you're like, oh, wow, this person, they are on the path to success and they come back. Maybe they report back to you. Do you stay in contact with a lot of members who have this long-term sobriety? What is it they're doing? 
Yeah, I do. And I get messages from people like out of the blue, letting me know how, you know, how well they're doing and what they're doing is they're following the steps. And the, the biggest thing, the biggest key, I mean, cause you could follow the steps, but you will fall off and derail if you don't have the first step down, which is acceptance. And that's what I deal. You know, we talk about that, you know, it's one of the first things we talk about is accepting that we're disordered with food. And because we are, we can't keep doing things the way we've done it in the past. We have to do things different so we can have a different outcome and accepting that, you know, that having that acceptance that I'm disordered, I will never be a moderator. I think as long as they have that little, you know, idea in the back of their head that someday they'll be well enough to eat, you know, Snickers bars. <laughs> like as long as you have that, you've not reached full acceptance. So that's the biggest key with these people is that they've accepted that they are in fact an addict. And, you know, just like the alcoholic who accepts they'll never drink again, it's that same thing. So they have to have acceptance and they work the steps. They go through, they employ halt when they discover they're in a danger zone. When they're in a tempting situation, they stop and they evaluate what's, you know, why am I getting the signal to eat here? Am I hungry? Is something else going on? What's my real need? So I think, you know, those are the ones that are successful. They've accepted and they continue to work through the steps to sobriety. And the ones that don't make it, it's because they've gotten complacent or grandiose. Like they're like, oh, you know, I've got this, you know, like Ed doesn't bother me anymore. And that's like the first sign of relapse. I think, I think a lot of people, I think Molly just posted something about today or yesterday. A lot of people think that like that taking the bite of food is when relapse starts. No, no, no. It starts way before that in our head when we start going down the wrong track and, and feeling like, you know, some people get cocky and overconfident and think they've nailed it. And that is a danger zone for sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, especially like if they're doing the work with you or somebody, right, to guide them and go backwards, we can go back and go, okay, there was some sort of emotional thing happening. Maybe you were depressed. Maybe you were anxious. Maybe you were bored, whatever, right? There's <laughs> yes. some sort of emotional thing. And then there yeah. was this mental thing. Like you said, like, oh, I've been clean for a few weeks. I can take a bite, right? Like it's that whole yeah. bargaining thing, like you were saying. Yes. Yeah. And then it's like, then there you are. And here's the deal. You can always, you know, you have a choice with that first bite. You have a mm-hmm. choice with the first bite you do not with the next, right? Because once we've taken that bite, like it's over. That disease pathway has ignited and it's over. And so listen to what Mary's saying. Listen to the steps that she's saying her clients that are doing the best, having the most, you know, quote unquote success in recovery, what they're doing. They're accepting every day. They have a disease and they have to take necessary actions to stay well. Yeah. So Thinking about that, we want to switch gears just a little bit because one thing that Clarissa and I run into a lot with working with clients is, right, so when I worked with clients with alcohol use disorder, meth use disorder, whatever, we never, with the exception of maybe meth, but we never talked about weight. We didn't. We didn't talk about weight, right, because... That was never something that we were concerned about. We just needed them to get off of those drugs. We needed them to get their kids back into their lives. We needed them to have jobs, that kind of thing. So something that comes up a lot with us, with clients, right, is that weight and that body image concern. And so, you know, help, you know, how do we help our clients address body image concerns? Like, do you direct your clients somewhere? Do you have a, a module that you do on this? Like, what information or tips are, can you give our listeners around this concern? 
So this is not one of the areas where like I'm, you know, where I feel like I have a lot of expertise. The whole body dysmorphia is something that, you know, eight years, I'm almost eight years sober that I still deal with, you know, it pops up there. I have more good days than, than bad days. But I think one of the things, like there's some things that I, you know, I encourage clients to take pictures because I do know that because of, of Ed, that we can have lost a significant amount of weight and look in the mirror and not see it. And so I encourage clients to take pictures because they don't lie, right? Like, so when you, the, it was very powerful the first time I made a side-by-side because I'd lost 83 pounds, but of course I still felt like in my mind, I still looked basically the same, even though logically I knew I had gone down some clothing sizes, I still felt just too big. And so when I made that first side-by-side, it was powerful for me to see, wow, I do look different because I couldn't see in that photo side-by-side, I couldn't see in the mirror what I was seeing in those pictures. So like, that's, you know, just one, you know, external thing that I encourage people to do. So to help retrain their brain, you know, for the image that they see, but that is a tough one. And society definitely doesn't make it easier. Like we're on social media. Like, I mean, at least a dozen times a day, I'm scrolling Instagram and I see this perfect body of somebody. Right. And, And so those kinds of things can mess with us and they can be a danger zone, you know, for people, but yeah, that's a tough, it's a really tough one. Yeah. It's it. I think what you said though was so important. I've been in recovery for eight years and this is still something that I struggle with. And I think for all of us who have eating disorder, food addiction, anything weight related, we've been through so much, you know, diet trauma that there's no quick solution to this. Even if we get to a place of body neutrality, that is going to be better than this, you know, body maybe hate that we have. And maybe yeah. body positivity is not the goal we should be seeking where we're going to love our body. We're going to love our belly and all the parts of us that we've spent so many years really disliking and yeah. trying to change. And so I think what you're saying is so, because we still have, we work with that addict population who is seeking you know, that instant gratification. Well, when I go on this, then I drop this weight, then I'm going to be happy. And that we really just need to be happy in recovery. And then we learn to love what our body does. And there's going to be those good days. There's going to be those bad days, but that for the most part, you start to have good days more of the time rather than, you know, every time you sit down, you feel that part in your pants where it makes you feel uncomfortable. And you're always like appearance checking and all that. These have been really ingrained in us. And we're just going to have to really take that time. And that a lot of us do have, you know, that body dysmorphic disorder. So do you tell clients, like, what do you tell clients about social media? Do you encourage them to like filter out a lot of that noise that's out there? How do you work with clients around like what's out there in society telling us exactly how we're supposed to look? Yeah. So I encourage, I said, if you follow some, if you follow an account that makes you feel bad about yourself, or every time you see a post from somebody and it gets your voice of sabotage talking, then, you know, 
unfollow. You don't need that like added struggle. And, you know, one thing that I started doing because I, you know, I will catch myself um, talking bad, like saying something negative, like my bait, the bane of my existence is my, the, you know, after losing a hundred pounds and having gained some weight back through perimenopause and stuff, I have like that lower belly apron and I, I hate it. Like, I'll be honest. I hate it. I'm not at that place where I'm like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm embracing that. No, I hate it. And so when I catch myself saying something like, I'll look in the mirror and I'll make a face, I'll be like, Uh, and I catch myself doing that. And I'm like, Oh, okay. So I made a rule that when I say or do something negative about my body, that I then have to counter it with some, I have to speak out loud what something I do like. So some days it'll be like, okay, I'm loving my leg muscles today, or, Oh, I'm having a good hair day. Love the hair today. And I have to just like do that because otherwise I will just go down the rabbit hole of, you know, in the morning, you know, not liking one thing. And by the end of the day, I'm just like a big fat cow all the way around. Right. Like, because it'll just keep spiraling down. So, you know, I do encourage client, like if you, you know, if they say something negative to me, I go, Whoa, 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 what are we talking about here? But that is like my, the next layer in my journey. I'm still learning to like, you know, embrace and be grateful for, you know, everything my body's been through and that it's still sustaining me. I mean, that, I just try to stay, you know, positive about that. Like, are, do I, you know, I work out daily. I'm pursuing, you know, changing my body, like, because I want to be healthy. Like, I don't want to be 80 years old and not have strong bones and, and have, and not have any muscle. Right. So I pursue that taking care of my body daily by, you know, lifting weights and stuff. And so, I mean, that's all I can do. like, just embrace it and do what my part to take care of it. Yeah. I think that's one thing that I love the most about your Instagram account is that you, as far as your body, you know what I mean? Like when you're showing your body on Instagram, it's because you've been to the gym and you're lifting weights or you're showing like, Hey, this is, this is what I went to the gym and did today. Or you're showing like an outfit of the day that clearly you feel like you're rocking and is probably just as much for you and probably does just as much for you as it does for the rest of us going like, Hey, I can wear a stuff like that too. You know? And I think that has been, I've loved that the most. I think about, yeah, about your, like your stories. So I know like clothes and shoes is one of the things that motivated me, you know, like, so when I was, when I first started my recovery journey, one of the things that I did was I had Pinterest. We all remember Pinterest, right? Like, so I had a board on Pinterest that was a fashion board, right? And I named it clothes and shoes that I love. And the little subtitle was if I had the body, like that's how I named this board, right? And so like every day I'm like posting outfits to it. And it drove me because I wanted to be able to, like, it was, it wasn't the only thing that drove me out. No, don't misunderstand. But like, that was one of the things that I did daily, like, because it motivated me. I wanted to be able to like wear, you know, certain clothes and shoes. And so now when I look, you know, if I pull up that board and I look at it, that's what my wardrobe looks like now. Like I had to, you know, visualize that. But, and I started, the reason I started my Instagram account is because I wanted a place to be like, look at these shoes, look at this skirt. And I knew there would be people that like, you know, would relate like one of the fun parts of losing the weight was being able to, you know, wear some things that I couldn't wear before. And so I really just started my Instagram account because I wanted to show that stuff off and then it evolved and became something I didn't expect. (laughs) 
Yeah, I just have a quick question about your Instagram account. How do you manage? You have all these followers, you do all these posts. Like, do you find that can be overwhelming at times? I imagine like everyone's reaching out to you all the time. How do you do that self care piece when, you know, you're Instagram celebrity? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's much, much, much bigger accounts than, than mine. I like the inner, I like when people, send me messages. I like that interaction. And it's funny, like, and I realized too, that there must be a lot of accounts that don't respond because one of the things I hear the most is thank you so much for answering, you know? So like I, and I know if I message someone, I want to be answered. So it's important to me. I love the interaction, but yeah, sometimes it gets overwhelming. And there's been some times where I'll, I like won't post something on my main feed for like a couple of days. Cause I'm just, sometimes I'm just like, Ugh, I'm uninspired. I have nothing to say, or I've said this a million times or, you know, does anybody even like, sometimes I have those moods, like nobody even cares. Like, you know, <laughs> It gets frustrating at times, but for the most part, like I like sharing, I like hearing, you know, from people that I've said something that has been a light bulb moment for them or that's inspired them. So mostly it's fun, but sometimes it is a little tedious. So where can our listeners find your account or do you have a webpage? How can our listeners follow you or reach out to you if they'd like to? So on Instagram and Facebook, I'm KetoMary71 and my website is KetoCoachMary.com. That's great. We'll make sure to get that in the show notes because I know that there will be people who are listening who totally vibe with what you're putting out into the universe. (laughs) So I'm excited for that. So we have a signature question that we ask everybody. So we're hoping that we'll get to hear your answer. What is something you would tell a younger version of yourself about food addiction or food addiction recovery? Oh, so if I knew then what I know now, I would say Ed is not your friend. (laughs) Food is not your comfort, you know, or your reward or your entertainment. So, you know, I say, I would say that, but, you know, honestly, like I feel, you know, I am in that place in my life where like, I wouldn't change anything. And I don't even know, like if the younger version of myself got some really awesome advice, if I would have been smart enough to follow it, like like I wouldn't have followed it probably. I'd be like, Oh no, that's not for me. But I, there's nothing I would really change because everything that I've been through has led me up to this point and I'm happy here. You have the gift of recovery and you are enjoying life. And I, and I can appreciate that answer so much because I think the only way for most of us, we would have followed it if, is if it was just another diet, right? That might've yeah. been the way that we would have been like, oh, okay, great. I'll do this. But thank you so much for being here today, Mary. It's been such a wonderful conversation with you. Thank you for having me. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah. We hope thank to you so have much. you back and answer more questions. Thank you so much. I'd love to. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. 
You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.